Hi, I'm Dave, and you're listening to Making Problems to Solve, the podcast about curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. Today, I'm talking to Tanda, uh, who's addicted to learning, using that knowledge to solve problems, and making people laugh. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? I'm good, thanks. So, you, definitely that introduction <laughs> uh, fits in with a lot of the people who I have on the show who are just always uh, learning new things. And uh, I was going through your Instagram to get some ideas of <laughs> what we might talk about. And one of the things I saw was juggling. And I know a lot of people who are makers, uh, you know, do try out juggling. I know I tried it um, a, quite a few times, but I never got around to actually getting good at it. Uh, what's your juggling history? Oh, yeah, I think a lot of makers uh, look for good reasons to procrastinate while their brain is chewing on something and uh, juggling or learning some skill with your hands is a good way to do that. I started juggling uh, when I was fairly young and uh, kind of the origin was we always had a bunch of oranges. We would always buy a, a whole bushel of oranges in the fall and, okay. uh, and we would just have oranges around throughout the year. And the deal with my dad was I could use them for juggling practice, but I had to eat them. So in learning to juggle, I ate a lot of really squished up, mushy oranges. So it was kind of that. Um, and I had a, a close friend growing up, Sonia, and, and everything was a competition. So whether it was pogo sticks or juggling or walking on stilts or learning to ride a unicycle, um, throwing a ball, whatever it was, it was always a competition. And so we would get together and, you know, I, I went for three minutes before I dropped the, the balls or I'm learning how to do four or I rode my unicycle 17, you know, feet or whatever to the stick on the ground. And then the other person would try <laughs> to beat it. So we had a good, healthy competition growing up, learning, learning new skills. And I think I had a, an older brother-in-law that, uh, you know, kind of introduced me to juggling. Okay. That's cool. I just think it's uh that's one I haven't asked anybody about. I usually ask about like art and music and stuff. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, my best juggling story involves sewing actually. So okay. I got this uh, um, wild hair to start making juggling bags and maybe you know selling them to my friends at school or or just making them for fun. And so I went through all of these different uh, things that I could use inside to make juggling bags with because I didn't buy beads or anything. And so among them was uh, cat food. Doesn't work very well. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, <laughs> it, it breaks down into a powder pretty quickly when being juggled. And, uh, and you certainly don't want to get it wet. Um, used all kinds of different things, but uh, unpopped popcorn ends up being something you have around the house or you can buy at the supermarket cheap that makes good uh, juggling bags and hacky sacks. But the, uh, the funny story is, I would just go into uh, the sewing room and we just had scraps of stuff laying around in the sewing room and I would make stuff out of them. And I found these old jeans and they obviously didn't fit anybody anymore. They're probably just given to us um, by somebody because they were like a men's ultra long, wouldn't have fit anybody in our house. And so I proceeded to uh, process them into juggling bags and, uh, and then my mom had some friends over, a good friend of hers from work and her friend's husband, and uh, the subject of uh, if she was done hemming all of his favorite jeans that he'd walked the back out of came up. And uh, well, it turns out I had made all of this man's jeans into juggling bags, and they 
had been oh. given to my stepmom for her to him because his wife wasn't uh, didn't have a sewing machine, and so that was a, that was a little embarrassing. I had taken all of his favorite jeans and turned them into juggling bags. Oh no! Yeah, he's going to have to break all those in you know, new ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so I guess you learned a lot of your, or at least the introduction to mechanical skills, uh, taking things apart and maybe putting them back together. Uh, your dad had a workshop at home and you just uh, started trying to figure things out there? Yeah, the workshop was really kind of my playground growing up. Um, my mom passed away when I was eight years old and I spent a lot of time going to work with my dad and and just hanging out with my dad, and he was a workaholic, so he had a job where he worked four 10-hour days, and then on the weekends, we had a backhoe and a bulldozer, and we did excavation work, and so we were just kind of always working, um, but I had a lot of home alone time uh, because my dad would go off to work, and then um, in the summers, if I wasn't in school, I would, often I would go to work with him, but as as much as I would go to work with him, I would just be home by myself. I have two older sisters, but they're eight and nine years older than me. So they were kind of out of the house during kind of my um, formative years. And, uh, and so I would just go out in the shop and just find scrap metal or things that were laying around, pieces of wood or, or something and start making something. I didn't have a lot of... Uh, uh, purchase toys. Um, I played with neighbors' toys. If I wanted to play with toys, I, I had to go hang out with neighborhood kids. Um, and I just started building things and I kind of was allowed to, you know, as long as I wasn't um, hurting myself or doing anything terribly dangerous or doing anything terribly dangerous that anyone knew about, um, right. <laughs> then uh, I just uh, kind of had free reign of the shop. And so I would go out with no intention um, of anything to make. It was just kind of, you know, when I get bored, I would, I did a lot of reading, but if I get bored of reading in the house, I would wander out to the shop and just start looking around until something caught my eye. And then I would make something out of it. Um, and then, and, and neighbors and friends and stuff would kind of knew that I had this uh, kind of bent for um, tinkering. And so they would give me, um, old clocks and bicycles. And, uh, you know, my grandmother gave me a can opener once, um, that was broken and I took it apart and I found out why it wasn't working and I fixed it and she took it back. And I was really mad, um, as a little <laughs> kid, why I needed my own can opener. You know, it's one of those little kid things where it was like, cool, I got it working. Now I have my very own can opener, electric can opener. Right which yeah. is just silly. <laughs> um, I, I could walk into the kitchen and use, use the one on the counter. Um, but then when it was working, she took it back and I was like, that's mine. You gave it to me. And so, but yeah, I was always taking stuff apart. I remember an old clock that was really interesting. That was a, uh, a bar clock. So it was something that came out of, you know, that would be up behind the bar. Um, and it was branded with some liquor or something, but it had all kinds of moving parts and things that moved around inside of it with the clock mechanism to do this animation. And I remember that being really fun to kind of take apart and see how all of that worked. Oh, that's pretty cool. I never, uh, <laughs> never had yeah. take part so, anything like that. Yeah. With that kind of mechanism. 
yeah, we had we had all the basic stuff, and we did the same kind of things. Um, you know, we we're always fixing things around the house and all that, and uh, you know, just learn basically how things work by you know breaking them and fixing them. So <laughs> looks like yeah, that's pretty. And that's kind of kind of the same thing. And then as I got older, I got into doing uh, a little bit more you know, electronics and stuff. I had electronics kits and um, I remember getting one of those like 101 mm -hmm. things to make with electronics or something. It had the little springs all over the front where you could bend the right. spring back and put the wire in to make a contact. And then it had a transistor and a light and uh, a meter and a whole bunch of just different uh, bits of electronics, very analog back in that day. Um, and then you know, kind of graduated up from there to some computer kits and all. My first computer was a kit. Um, so I kind of laughed when I, when you were talking to Tom, um, people's idea of like vintage computing and from back in the old days and, right. uh, and Tom's back in the old days, I was well into college or in my first job, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> com computing wise. So, um, so my, my first computer was a, uh, an old, uh, it was a Timex Sinclair. So it was a kit that you bought out of the back of a magazine and you soldered the components in yourself. And when you were done, you plugged it into a TV to the composite right. input on a TV for your monitor. And if you wanted to save your programs, you did it through a eighth inch audio jack to a cassette. It, you know, yep. it just made <laughs> the sort of the same sort of, uh, um, it, pulse modulation that you would use on a modem only you recorded it onto a cassette tape. And then if you were lucky, you got enough fidelity to play it back in and, and read it back in. Yes. I remember those. And actually it's kind of funny. Yeah. I fooled around with that kind of same kind of stuff as Tom, like buying components and putting them together after the PC revolution when uh, they had standardized parts. But my first computer, my dad brought home a, uh, whatever it's like a electronic teletype right so it had a mm -hmm. um a acoustic coupler modem so you take the phone off the wall and put it into the thing right <laughs> and then right. uh played games on that so it was just you type in and then the computer would come back and type back to you so everything was <laughs> typed onto a roll of paper yeah and that was the first computer experience i had and it's crazy that think of that and uh <laughs> yeah think, of, have, think uh, of that to your phone i mean it's right it's exactly been a blink of an eye historically yeah. speaking in in the progress so the exponential acceleration has just been crazy yeah you yeah, always see funny. that war games um that scene from war games anytime anybody right. talks about an acoustic modem they they use the clip from war games of him putting the telephone receiver on the acoustic modem yep yeah everybody uh <laughs> well everybody our age you know can relate to that yeah <laughs> that's funny and i remember those electronic kits like with the little springs i had some of those and i was never successful at that i never really got deep into electronics but uh like last year my friend bought one of those from a flea market mm -hmm. for my for me birthday and it was just oh, sitting cool. around the house and my 24 year old 24 year old son found it and he's like let's try this thing so <laughs> And oh, very uh, cool. we didn't read the instructions. He was just like, let's just hook a bunch of these wires together and see what happens. And then it really had a bunch of corrosions. The battery terminals weren't working and stuff. And we were trying to problem solve. It was pretty funny. We spent like the afternoon messing with yeah. that thing. It's so fun. No, it was so fun. I remember, uh, I mean, it was a sort of thing that you could, 
you know, it had like a little manual with it and it would be, you know, connect point 27 to point 32 or whatever. And so you could make something work without understanding it. And then once you got a little bit of an understanding, then you could start, start playing with it and, you know, making up your own, your own stuff. But, uh, it wasn't very complicated. Um, you know, it was turning a light on and off and making a light blink or something, but it was more with a, with a relay and a, and a timer, you know, not any complicated electronics. And so it was, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. I think this is the deluxe kit. It had uh, a transistor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah my, mine, <laughs> I think mine had one, one NPN transistor, which I yep. probably <laughs> burned up at some point some point and then wondered why it wasn't working because it was a black box and I yeah, had no understanding of yeah. how, what was going on inside of it. But, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And from there you, um, you know, you, I guess you explored more electronics and computer science in college. And yeah, I had, uh, I sold the, I sold that Timex Sinclair to my, uh, literature teacher. And he used the heck out of that thing. Um, he wrote up lessons plans and got a printer for it and did all kinds of stuff. And for me, it was the building it and making and seeing it work was the fun. I never really thought it was much of a computer. Um, but I, uh, it, just cause it was so tedious to use. Um, but I wrote, a, I wrote, you know, a handful of programs and stuff on it and, and did that. But then I got an Apple II. So that was my, okay. my real first real computer uh, was an Apple II, and that's what I took off to college with me. And because I was, computers were kind of coming of age, or personal computers, I guess I should say, were kind of coming of age, and and I had really gotten into taking the, the first ever computer class offered at our school, and so that was kind of you know on the front of mind as I was getting ready to go off to college, and I so I went off and studied computer science in college, but always kind of kept to the, uh, the real low level. Um, my, my degree in my college program was in operating systems and compiler writing kind of systems engineering. What would okay. maybe today be computer architecture or, or computer engineering. And, right. uh, so I've always kind of had that leaning to make things move or blink or control things. I wasn't, really ever into apps or games, uh, you know, things where you just interacted with the screen and a controller. I wanted to be interacting with something out there in the real world. So that was kind of my, my leaning. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, what That reminds me of one thing that uh, I don't know. And you had Apple too. Did you ever uh, have, there's a programming, a turtle programming language where you could uh -huh. command a little triangle to drive around the screen. Yeah. Logo and graphics, that, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yep. And uh, yeah. that started like as actual like robot that would uh, drive around on the floor. Just yeah. To the computer and they would type commands and it would move. And yeah, one of the really fun games on the early Apple, or I thought it was fun, was called Robot Wars. Are okay. you familiar with that? <laughs> Did you have an Apple? No, um, no, I never had an Apple computer. Um, we had them like at school. So I got to use them there, but I never had one. We had always like, different computers like we had the commodore uh okay. <laughs> computer which okay. is never as cool as the apple computer but yeah it was kind um, of fun you you got to program your robot so 
you wrote the code for your robot. Okay. Of course, it was virtual. It was just on screen. Um, but it had like little tank treads and you could run the right one or the left one to make it turn and you could turn by uh, running the treads, I think. Um, or maybe you just gave it an angle and a, and a speed. And then it had a turret that you could turn the gun around and then you could fire. And okay. you could tell how much damage you had taken or if you had, had, right. had been hit. And that was it. And so you had uh, tools to program all of those things. And so you'd write your program, a friend, or maybe you just compete against yourself, would write their program. And then you would put all of these robots onto the playing field. And, uh, you know, and some people would try to just drive down to the bottom. And then they would just, you know, you could tell if you hit something. So you just drive until you hit the bottom of the screen. Um, and then you just drive back and forth shooting up across the screen. Right. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, that did that, else. you know, this, I always got killed because of this. So then you drive to a corner and then just sweep 90 degrees back and forth shooting all the time. And other people just randomly try to move around. And so it was kind of fun to, that you were programming something that, and then your program competed against your classmates program or your, you know, your friend's program. So that was all, that was fun. That's cool. I mean, that's basically what uh, Robot Wars is now, except for you just have to actual robots <laughs> that with the chainsaw or some kind of flamethrower or something attached to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we were, yeah. I, I got, I got invited to participate in BattleBots and, uh, and we, we weren't selected at the end of the day. We didn't go to filming. We were told that, uh, uh, I think the wording was, uh, we have a, a, a very similar robot with, with better eye appeal, I think was the, uh, oh, no. <laughs> um, was, was our, uh, exit from, from the competition. But I got together with my son-in-law and two friends, um, to do the design work and to start you know, doing some of the prototyping and stuff as we were submitting our, you know, you have to submit videos about the team and some background and, and then you present your concept in 3d models and stuff. Um, but I thought our concept was really cool and I don't think I've seen it done, but we were basically going to, our robot was going to have like a mag base, like, like you would hold a, a indicator with. Okay. But we had these giant neodymium magnets that were just like scary strong, like they would crush your arm if it was between the magnet and a piece of metal strong. And we were going to have, we were going to rotate those. So we had the ability to turn it on and off because there's a metal floor in the arena. Okay. And so we were competing in the, I think it was a heavyweight division. And I think at that time it was 200 pounds was the maximum weight of your robot. Um, but we could lock ourselves to the floor and have a, you know, like an effective weight, like we weighed 700 pounds. Right, you can push down force. <laughs> so our idea was we were just going to go out and lock ourselves to the floor, and then we had spinning weapons that just spun around on the ends of chains, and we could spin them really fast, and they could be heavy because we were locked to the floor. Um, wow, but uh, <laughs> that sounds terrifying. So yeah, w yeah, we probably would. It's probably best we didn't make the show. We probably would have killed ourselves. Oh yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's really cool. I never, um, yeah, I never even got to make a Lego robot, um, let alone. <laughs> You know, uh, I never, I like never that. did Legos. I mean, I told you earlier that I didn't really have a lot of, um, my dad wasn't really into like purchase toys. It was like, if you weren't working, you should be making something. It was kind of his okay. uh, <laughs> mentality, which was, was good for my, for my getting into making. Um, and I didn't really miss it, but the only time I ever played with 
you know, Legos or Tinker Toys or anything other than I had an I had an Erector set, um, which was kind of like right. a little metal kit of toys with nuts and bolts that my aunt had given me. Um, but I played Legos at at friends' house, but I never had any, so I never really got into Legos, and so I built some of my first Lego stuff with uh, my daughter's uh, STEM class, where they were using the Lego Mindstorm. Right stuff to build robots. And that was kind of fun. I, I was a mentor for one of their um, math and engineering programs. And, and those were fun. That's... That's cool. And you did let the kids use the Legos too? Uh, well, you didn't take them I tried, away? <laughs> but... No, I did. I did. I did pretty good. Um, but I do, but I do suffer from that. Um, we just, we just had a couple of interns come through. And, uh, and, and I, and I love helping out to the point that uh, they would come and be like, I can't figure this out. And instead of just saying, well, go read this, I would, I would stand there with them and we would build it together, um, which, which they learned a lot, but, uh, um, and they were able to accomplish a lot in a short period of time. So it's always kind of a trade-off between getting two hands on with someone you're training and, and just saying, no, here are the resources, go go figure it out yourself. Yeah, that's actually an important thing you have to learn. And especially, I'm sure they teach that in, especially, you know, engineering school and stuff is that, yeah, these, you can't ever learn all the different weird things you're going to need to know. So you need to learn how to look them up. And I know that if I'm training someone to do something, that's a really difficult thing. It's like, well, I could just do this way faster. I don't need to train anybody, but it's, it's like, I don't actually want to do this job. So I need to <laughs> train somebody right. to do this. Um, yeah, this... And I do try to do that a lot is to, you know, guide them in the right direction to figure it out themselves so that they won't have to rely on me to answer all their questions. Right. Yeah, it was uh, they were they were given um, or at least this particular intern that I worked quite a bit with. Um, they were given some pretty, uh, pretty good tasks for like a six week internship. It was, uh, you know, to do to have a two axis motion controller um, move something, a gripper, um, interface it with a PLC and write an interface to it from a, from a site-wide SCADA system in six weeks. And he had mechanical engineering background, but had not done any, any programming of any kind. So yeah, he was to do PL, to learn PLC programming, uh, motion control programming and Python, you know, code to, access it from the network in six weeks um was was a pretty fast pace but, <laughs> yeah uh, it sounds uh sounds yeah. like it that's cool so i mean basically everything you you know, like you've done a lot of different jobs but they usually come back to interfacing with some sort of physical object even if there's a lot of computer code involved yeah yeah i think almost my entire career has been um, my, my first job was probably the, um, the least interfacing I did with any kind of hardware. So my first job, I worked for a company that made, um, made tools to demo software. So basically it was, they were tools to mock up your software and show what it would look like on the screen and let the user interact with it. But you okay. kind of faked all the logic behind it so that you could, quickly develop a trade show demo or whatever. And so I wrote some, um, 
graphic screen capture routines and stuff so that if you had another app that was running, um, which seems really silly now. I mean, now that's just built into Windows. You just hit the, you know, <laughs> Windows Shift S and capture the screen. Right. Um, exactly. But at the time, there wasn't really anything that would allow you to do that. So I wrote some code that used keystroke interrupts and intercepted them and and then went into the video frame buffer and reassembled images and compressed them to um, compressed graphics files and saved them. And so that it was an early screen capture thing for them. Uh, was That was the enjoyable um, or the most enjoyable part of that. The rest was just kind of sitting there coding. Uh, but then every other job was uh, really interacting with equipment and it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, I got to go do a lot of really cool things, interact with uh, uh, interesting machines. Uh, the next company I worked for had an embedded this is how old I am. They had an embedded VAX um, brick that you could build into an embedded system and it ran a real-time operating system. And we did a big bottle making plant, which was interesting. Um, equipment that ran on the line of, for Owens, Illinois, big bottle making manufacturer makes something like 85% of all the bottles in the world. Uh, wow. I got to go to Corning and see the, we made a, a monitoring system for the fiber optic plant. And so that was really cool because they're, oh, wow. They have like this big <laughs> glass billet in the second story and they're heating the end of it and pulling off a little thin piece of glass. And then the machine where we were monitoring, we were monitoring the thickness of the piece of glass and then in real time controlling the speeds and the heats and everything to try to keep it uniform in temperature on the ground floor. And then it went through the ground floor into the basement where it was getting spooled up on a big spool of glass fiber. Um, so it was like a three-story machine. And that was that was cool to see. So there, I, I like, I could just go do plant tours, you know, kind of how it's made plant tours. Um, and so that was always a fun part of the job. Um, another one that was a lot of fun was the, uh, um, I got to go to the, at the time it was called, Trisema, I think, the Trident Simulation Grounds. I think it's called the Naval Undersea Weapons Center or something now. Um, okay. But they have a they have the entire bridge of a Trident submarine, um, or they did back in the day, um, in a room in a basement. And then in the adjacent room, it's just full of computers and gyroscopes and, and everything they need to simulate a mission, um, which if you think about it, is easier to do with a submarine than a lot of other things because you really have no context of the outside world. Right. You don't need um, screens. So it's not yeah. <laughs> like you need screens and a whole bunch of, you know, if you can, if you can fake an image through a periscope then uh, and fake and fake sonar pings and stuff, then you can do a really good simulation. Um, but that was really cool to, to see and play with because you just walk out of the computer room, kind of the server room into the adjacent room and you were on the bridge of a Trident submarine and all of the instruments were working and moving and and being driven by this simulation so that was yeah so it, it's 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 been fun just going and um getting to interface with equipment and that's kind of my that's kind of my thing is is learning how machines work and and making interfaces to them to get them connected to a process or the world or computing of some kind okay yeah, it sounds like you've 
you know, just been doing that for you just finding more and more complex machines to <laughs> uh, hook together um, over the years. Is that uh, sound about right? Um, well, I mean, that when I'm working for other people, I think it tends to be right. more complicated machines. When I started my own business, I started my first business when I was a junior in college, and that was to design um, a computer for lab use. And so it was a it was really by today's standards, a luggable computer it was far from portable, but it was one of those early computers where it had the, looked like a suitcase um, right. and the screen popped off the front to expose the monitor and the disc drives. So you had kind of this, uh, um, if you pick, picture just a big rectangular box and then one one of the narrow sides pops off and is your keyboard and what it exposes when it pops off is a little tiny monitor and and hard drives. Uh, uh, KeyPro was a company that commercially made them. I think HP, like an HP 85 was similar. Um, but we found a case, we imported a case and, and then put our screaming uh, overclocked 12 megahertz uh, 286 in it, um, okay. which yeah. we felt was really powerful for the time. Um, <laughs> and then a, a couple of custom analog to digital cards and stuff so that you could take it in and hook it up to lab equipment. And, uh, and that, that was really a, an interesting venture. And, uh, I built computers under that business name for a while after I got out of college and that, that first job with the graphics capture and stuff, um, went away. And, uh, and then when I started the business that I still have today, it was to do embedded, um, microcontrollers. Uh, I was always fascinated with being able to write code that you stored in a chip and then it just, you know, ran something uh, for the rest of its life. And so when I started Vanguard Tech, it was to um, do microcontroller based electronics. So then it became really simple. Then instead of like a great big machine, it was just some device that had, to had one simple task in life. And so... The first, the first thing I made with from Vanguard Tech was a, uh, um, a device to allow you to have multiple phone numbers on your phone line. Okay, I remember those. Um, <laughs> you remember those? There's a, um, yeah, there was a service, and every every little baby bell had their own branded name for it, um, but it was called Distinctive Ringing or Star Ring or Custom Ringing or you know something to that effect throughout the country. And instead of buying another phone line, which was expensive, um, for like $2 a month, you could get another phone number assigned to your line. And when someone called that number, it rang differently. So it would be like short, short, long. Uh, so it would, or it would be you know long, short, short, short. There were different ring patterns that they would program into the switch. Um, and then you knew they had called that number by the cadence of the ringing. And so I made this box that would um, listen to the first ring. It would it would keep you from hearing the phone, and then it would listen to the first ring pattern and then route it out to one of the ports on the box. So if you were a small business, you could have a a fax line and a, and a voice recorder for your business, and then you could have your home line, and um, and then it, it was really cheap instead of paying an extra thirty or forty bucks a month for additional lines. So that was, that was, uh, 
the first product. And then in trying to get that made, I, uh, I talked to a lot of manufacturers about making those parts for me. And it kept coming up. They were like, well, how do you get your chips programmed? And I kept saying, well, I just, I have all this stuff to program all of the chips, the programmable chips myself, because that's kind of my business is doing firmware design. And that ended up turning into uh, kind of a printing press, um, basically for chips, uh, where I would get blank chips drop shipped to me from a manufacturer, um, or I would go pick them up from local manufacturers and I would write somebody else's program into them. I didn't even, I wasn't even writing the firmware myself at that time. It was just firmware they had received from their customer as the manufacturer. And, uh, I was writing it in, putting a label on it, repackaging them and sending them back to them just in time to put them onto their assembly line. And so that was, that was my business for a long time as well. That's interesting. So you were, you called them up to have them help you make something. And basically they found out that you could provide a service back. To a service to them. Yeah. Of, and so yeah. my business kind of, yeah, kind of took a turn because I was, I was going to them to see if they were contract electronics manufacturers and I was going to, right. them to see if they would manufacture my device, just given, you know, the already programmed chips and, and the circuit board layouts and everything. And uh, yeah. And then I ended up programming chips for them for, well, for a number of vendors like that for, for years. And, uh, so that, that was a good little business. It was, uh, uh, very effective business. You had to pay for electricity and polyester labels, but other than that, your customers <laughs> provided you the, uh, the chip and you rearranged the bits in the chip and gave it back to them with the polyester label on it that said what it did, um, and charged them for it. So it was a pretty good business model, but that was, and then during that time, because that kind of came up and was just running and I, I wasn't doing a lot of engineering to engage me. Um, I started doing some website design and um, ended up um, creating a business to host websites and provide telephone service and stuff for the, uh, the area I was in. Okay. Um, because we were kind of, kind of remote on the, on the West side of town and we didn't have high speed internet at the time and I wanted to get high speed internet. So that was kind of my excuse. So I ran high speed internet to my office and then I resold high speed internet and phone service, um, because it all came in on one trunk line, um, to my neighboring offices and businesses in the complex and then also hosted and, and did websites for people. So that was, that was kind of fun. Yeah, that's interesting. I kind of got started. I didn't have an internet uh, service, but yeah, I was building websites and stuff for a while. And that was easy to, to have a really small business doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, obviously it's probably not super profitable um, way to go. Yeah, but... <laughs> a lot of competition and, and the yeah. leading edge is a, a lot more complicated to stay up with. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people willing to pay for it. When I started, that's true. people didn't even know what it was, <laughs> you know, okay. it, it was like, <laughs> why would I want to have, you know, a billboard out there on the, on the internet that no one even sees, you know, people didn't, you know, it was a hard sell. Um, maybe if I was in, you know, Silicon Valley or somewhere, but uh, we're right. a little behind the leading edge here. So uh, it was, it was more difficult to sell. 
but I did, I did some neat projects with that. Um, one of the ones I did was a kind of a loyalty card system, um, or what would, today would be called a, a loyalty card system. And I reprogrammed those old, uh, fluorescent, uh, display terminals, the trans terminals, like you used to always, like when you paid with a credit card at the front at a restaurant and they had this little vacuum fluorescent screen box that they ran your card through and, and yep. it called up via modem. So I reprogrammed those to, uh, to send loyalty points or to register whatever you bought. And so the merchant would put in the amount of whatever you had just paid and that would send it back to my servers um, and they would calculate how many loyalty points you got for spending that amount. And then I had kind of a, well, an early cloud-based um, uh, system where then the merchant could go on and know how many loyalty points you had and, and it could report it whenever you swiped your card through the credit card terminal. So then they issued loyalty cards with a mag stripe on them, like a credit card. And um, so... I think I was a little ahead of my time. That was uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the, whole con like the whole concept of, of, of your data will be, it wasn't called the cloud at the time, but your data will right. be on my servers and I'll keep track of your customer's loyalty card stuff. And, and, yes. and I'll you'll have something at your, even. at yeah. your uh, counter that will call my computer and, and send the information. And then I'll give you a little receipt if whether they got anything uh, free or not. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. It sounds like you were a little bit early on all these businesses. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I was, I was always like, I got real excited about it. And because I've read all the, you know, kind of futurist technical stuff, I just assumed that everybody um, would understand where it was going and, and how cool it was and, and that it was the future. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not a good enough salesperson. In fact, I'm a horrible salesperson. So um it was it was difficult to to sell some of those that one in particular somebody else was was selling it but um and okay. i was just yeah, doing a... the technology for them but uh yeah i i i have ideas that i can't sell cuz i'm not uh, i'm not very salesy i need a tone. yeah i don't think <laughs> yeah exactly maybe that's the that's the way to go i was thinking that uh myself yeah i'm not great at sales either so you know i've had a lot of ideas and i'm like oh that'd be a really cool idea um and then you got half of them, then I go on the internet and I search and I'm like, oh, someone's already doing it. <laughs> right. It's too late. Right. <laughs> so unless you're like yeah. really, really great at sales, it's hard to take over a market that already exists. Obviously that happens a lot, but yeah, it's definitely not, not something that's easy to do just in your garage by itself. Yeah. And it's hard to uh, come up with something so unique and novel that yep. kind of after, after, um, this chip programming business kind of waned. I had two really big customers and they, um, within about a year's time, both of them offshored all of their work. Um, and uh, so that put a big dent in my business because my only other customers um, that wouldn't ever offshore were kind of uh, aerospace uh, customers. And, but their volumes were tiny compared to the other customers who were making um, one of them was making toll road passes. So that was a real high volume for rail cars and toll road electronic RFID passes. Okay. And the other one was making slot machines, which I wouldn't have thought was a huge market until the first time I walked into a modern day casino and realized <laughs> yeah. that, uh, yeah, I, I was picking up 
um, pallets of chips, like boxes of uh, computer chips, you know, very densely packed on pallets to program for slot machines. So it's just crazy, the worldwide market for for slot machines. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes sense that those are something that, you know, there's, uh, it's definitely in volume, you know. Right, and, uh, and modern day slot machines are basically video game consoles, so they all have yeah, exactly. Ethernet chips and, and, and then specialized chips for monitoring and timestamping when you open and close the access doors to maintenance them and, and stuff. And that was the sort of chips I was programming. Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. More, more things you wouldn't, wouldn't think about until you come across it and you're like, Oh yeah, they guess they do have to have some, some record of when someone opens it up to make any changes inside or to switch games or whatever. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's really interesting. So, so after that business kind of, um, died out on me. Uh, I went to work for um, another company building machines for a while um, and then really got into doing, helping people with design and prototype. And that was kind of what led me to get a lot of more of my machine tools and 3D printers and um, that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you were able to get into kind of solving different types of problems for people. Um, actually doing machining and building prototypes. Yeah. I had always been really interested in, in having the equipment to make my own stuff, to just kind of make my own ideas. Um, like, like many makers, I'm sure a lot of, uh, your listeners have had the desire to make something and they went to have someone make it for them or to, you know, lease equipment or something and found out how expensive it was and then thought, well, I'll just spend my money on the equipment and then make it myself. I think that's how a lot of us collect garages full of equipment is they go someplace to have someone else make it for them. And they look at the price and they go, wow, for that, I could buy the equipment. Um, so I had bought a little milling machine early on back when I had the chip programming business um, and, and used it a fair amount, but I ended up running out of room and needed to expand into the area that was my little machine shop for the chip programming stuff. And, uh, but I'd always been fascinated by it. Um, my, my dad, uh, when I'd go to work with him, they had a machine shop that was kind of adjunct to what he did at work. And, uh, and we had, you know, people that in the neighborhood that worked on cars and had, uh, auto shops and stuff with machine tools. And so I was always, always fascinated. And uh, I think Tom said this when I, on your podcast was at some point I realized that I had permission to go and buy one of those machines myself that right. I, I, at some point as an adult, you're like, Oh, I don't really just have to dream, you know, still dream about having one of those someday. It's actually something that I could afford to buy. It's, you know, for the price of a, a used car, I could have a really nice machine. Um, and, and most of my machine tools, I've been able to use them to do design and prototype for people and pay for them. So it really hasn't been much of a, of a burden to buy them. I have usually been able to turn them into, uh, designs or use them to make, make their own way. 
That's great. What and you just had the confidence that you're like, well, I can probably figure this out. Uh, I just know what a mill is, uh, so I understand the basic concept. Or how did you how did you I, decide that? Uh, yes, I, you definitely I don't. Can I just a have mill. something missing. I think in my brain that keeps me from um, worrying about that sort of thing. I okay. I, I you know I I see other people being intimidated by it, and I'm like, that's really weird because I don't remember. I was just like, oh, I'd like to have one of those. And and I bought it and and didn't really give much thought to the fact that I had never never operated one before um or didn't know anything about it. Um I've always uh had kind of a learning addiction where I just do deep dives and and just will spend days and days just studying everything I can about something to learn about it to build enough confidence to try to make those first few mistakes and, um, and learn from them. And, you know, kind of, I kind of take the approach of, um, what's, what's the worst that could happen. As long as I know the safety issues and I'm not going to hurt myself, I'm going to run some material, but that's right. really cheap class. I mean, that's, you know, I could go to a community college, um, and spend X amount or I could, just spend that on some materials and I know I would probably be more well-rounded that I learned some of this more officially. Um, but yeah, I bought my big CNC and turned it on and, and started poking around and learning G code. And then I had access to a makerspace that had a, uh, one of the little open, not open builds, um, other mill CNCs for like circuit board milling. Okay. Which was a really um, safe way to learn CNC because it was really designed for circuit board milling um, as far as the weight of it and the rigidity of it. But it was a full-blown XYZ, you know, runs G-code CNC machine. And so I just started making little tiny aluminum parts on it and uh and it's the same thing it's just on a tiny scale but it got me used to the the design pattern of doing 3d modeling something uh creating tool paths and i would just go find available software i was fortunate that i had a customer i did a design for and part of my bid on that design um was that they would purchase a seat of solidworks for me which was very expensive, um, but it was just part of the the design, and uh, and so then I downloaded a a I think it was free or a trial version of a, a cam tool add on for SolidWorks, and just started playing with creating tool paths and and learning how to uh, do some really basic stuff on that little tiny machine. And then when I got my large machine, it was just the same. It was just scarier um, right. <laughs> because it was a, a lot more weight and, and a lot faster movement. And um, yeah, but but I had built the confidence to tentatively take some baby steps into that. And the silly thing about that was I was part of a machining and tooling association. Um, more more to introduce them to robotics because I was 
a um, had become a certified integrator for a, a collaborative robot made by Universal Robots. Um, and I was doing, I was trying to get into the machining industry to do machine tending uh, applications. And so I was just in their group and interacted with them a lot. And so then after I got my machine, um, one of them was like, are you up for taking on some machining business? And I'm like, well, I'm just getting started, but yeah, I suppose. And they give me this uh, enclosure for some aerospace product. I don't know what it was, but it had ridiculous tolerances on it. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And I did the first few and their QC guy found a few things and I went and bought more stock. And, and these were pretty good sized chunks of like two inch by 10 inch thick, you know, two inch thick pieces of aluminum billet and made a couple more and, and got, got it past their QC people and they were happy with them. And, and and I was like, oh, sorry, sorry, it took so long. That was the first design to print thing I've ever made. And the guy, <laughs> the guy was just like, but you haven't, you know, I was like, yeah, that's the, that's the first thing I've ever like machine for someone else. Um, and so that was, that was kind of funny um, that he just assumed that, you know, I was an up and running machine shop and had been machining for a long time. And here I was learning on their parts. No, that's <laughs> that's yeah, that's really funny, and and and, uh, sp and spending money to learn, but it was a really good. I mean, to do something to, you know, to those kinds of tolerances where they're you know wanting things, you know, from datums to within a few tenths or something, uh, you learn quickly and <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That's like the I always say it's like trial by fire uh, learning process, right? You just like you're thrown in to figure everything out yourself. And that's, that's pretty wild though. Most people wouldn't be like, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, did you know the complexity of the job when you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it? until I got the drawings, I didn't even know. He was just like, oh, we, we're like really swamped, um, you know, and he knew the capabilities of the machine um, okay. or, you know, the capacities of the machine. And so he was like, oh, you could probably run this on your machine, um, you know, if you want to run, run some of them. And. So it was a, it was a really good, and I ran, um, I didn't really look for outside work, um, uh, to a large extent. I kind of have this game I play, um, with my machines where if I buy a machine, an expensive machine, I'll, uh, I'll put how much I paid for it somewhere near the machine or on the machine. And then if I get work <laughs> that somebody pays me for, I subtract it from the price and, and it's a, it's a toy until it's paid for itself and then it's a tool. So my oh, machines are all working their way from being, from being toys to being tools. And my, uh, and my mill, uh, it only took five months, um, to pay for my mill. Um, and then I was much less, uh, aggressive about telling people I had a mill and would do outside work because then it was paid for and, and well, and then COVID came around. And so, okay. So it hasn't been, you haven't been doing that for your, a really long time then? No, not, uh, maybe, I guess I've had the machine now, well, now it's probably been maybe four years since I first agreed to buy it when they moved it out of the facility where I bought it from. So. Okay. And it was a place That's... that I used to work. Um, 
doing electrical engineering and, and manufacturing management stuff. And I just said, Hey, if you ever get rid of these, let me know. Um, because there was talk of selling out to other companies and that they already had machines and stuff. And so I talked with the machinist a lot because he was making a lot of the things that I had worked on and designed. And, uh, and sure enough, they were being sold to somebody and he was like, Oh, that this is, these are duplicate machines and older machines to ones that the other company has. If you're interested, make me an offer. And so I just kind of jumped in and said, well, worst case, I'll, they're making me a pretty good deal on the machine because uh, they're just trying to move it and they know that I'll take it. And worst case, it sits in my shop for a while. I pay a you know small fortune to get it moved. And, uh, and then I sell it to somebody else. And, you know, so that's kind of how I view, view machines as just the price of education. Okay. And yeah. I think if that's it, a... if I, if I get a little behind, um, and can then sell the machine, then that's what I paid. The difference is what I paid for my education. Okay. Yeah. That's uh that Jimmy, I think does the, the same kind of thing where he's like, yeah, if I, I just buy this and I can, you know, I'll make money with it. So he's like, oh, it's worth it. You know, it's worth it to just try to learn the new thing. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely have that same, same mindset. And then right after I bought the mill, I'd been looking for a lathe um, for a long time as well. And it just happened that within a week or so of making the agreement to buy the mill, um, a lathe popped up on Craigslist. uh, And I knew the company locally here in town and made an author on the lathe and got it too. So I went from zero to having a mill and a lathe in my shop uh, pretty quickly. Or not not zero. I had some small machines. I had a little uh, 7 by 10 lathe and a little, um, there was kind of an intermediate step where I um, bought a Sherline mill and CNC'd it. So it's, I don't know if you're familiar with Sherline, but they're a little, yeah. uh, little three-axis mill. And I had bought a Sherline mill uh, and added CNC to it. And so I got to play with that a little bit as well to do some learning before I jumped in on my bigger machine. Okay. Yeah. I think a couple of people, I think uh, like AJ from design everything. And I think Bernie, mm-hmm. either he talked, maybe he talked about it. Uh, yeah. So it's like, a, it's, it's a small mill and it's not, you know, industrial. Yeah, I think AJ price. has a, a lathe, a Sherline lathe okay. that he's CNC as well. If I'm not, if, unless I've confused him with somebody else, but yeah, yeah it's a go good way to, it's a good way to learn. It's not, um, it's not hugely expensive and, you know, a part falling off or, you know, ruining a tool or whatever doesn't cost you a huge amount. So it's a less expensive way to learn. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So let's see, what else do I have here <laughs> that we talked about? Um, what are things you, um, when I went back through your Instagram just to get some, you know, some context, uh, is that you were working on like shop automation. Um, yeah. Is that, did you automated the machines in your shop? Do you, uh, work um, without you or, or is that more of a, uh, one of your jobs? Well, yeah. So here's kind of what happened with that. I, I, one of the like last little social media things that I did or the last videos I posted, um, was, uh, 
I wanted to automate my shop. I wanted to connect everything um, to my shop to make this uh, like operations network um, where my shop was kind of like my my craft or my you know facility, and I had access to what everything was doing and what its output was, and you know kind of kind of home automation, but taken to the next level of using actual industrial control type stuff to monitor and automate and know the levels of my pond and know what the pump speeds were and um, and just use it as my playground to just kind of explore that world. Um, and then uh, as, the, as we kind of rolled into the pandemic, uh, I was thinking, well, I should cut back on the number of customers that I'm working with and just have a few customers. And I was working with a company here in town um, to do some robotic stuff and and kind of just on a, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say on a whim, I guess. I gave it, gave it a fair amount of thought, but I was like, they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, I should just apply for an engineering job with them. And then I just have one customer and I don't even have to do my own taxes or do my own payroll or worry okay. about any of that. <laughs> I just show up. Um, and that's kind of what I'm doing for them. So I'm doing automation, um, tying machines into automation, building um, an OT network, if you're familiar with that, where it's like you have your IT network where you do emails and applications and you have your OT network where you tie into machines and controls control systems and monitor throughputs of parts. And, um, and so it's kind of a playground for me. And so instead of doing it, my own shop, I just go to work and do it every day for a, a company that I work for. Oh, that's interesting that you kind of like, well, I, I want to learn this and these guys will, you know, pay me to figure things out. I, I mean, obviously you have some, you know, you learned the basic concepts and you've already, you're working for this company. They have, uh, confidence in like your skills and stuff. So they were able right. to. Well, I knew a lot uh, of it. It transition. was, uh, you know, a lot of it, I wasn't just learning. Um, uh, okay. I was learning modern, more modern tools for doing it. I guess I should say I'd done a lot of it throughout my career. Um, but I just hadn't been doing that sort of stuff as much. And, and now there are some really cool modern day tools for doing it. And people's, acceptance of things and you know being on a on a networked control system throughout an entire facility um is 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 just the way that people do things now it's not a not a new concept or anything so it's kind of fun to dive back into it now when there's lots of support for it and and companies that make it uh robust and easy to do Okay, that's interesting. It was kind of like if you talked about uh, building a website back when you were doing it uh, compared to now, right? So right, was, yeah. Like if I, you were this, to jump into web design, having not done it since 19, you know, 98, 2000, whenever I had um, my website design business, um, might have even been, yeah, it was maybe about that time um, or a little later, and then just didn't do it for until now. And you jumped back in, you'd know how to do it. You'd know the basics and you could hit the ground kind of running, but your your tool chain would have evolved out from under you. So there's a lot a lot of catch up to kind of come up to speed with 
HTML5 and how everything is is done these days and CSS and things that just were either nascent or not really being used back in the day. And that now they're just how you do it. Right. Yeah. That's uh that's interesting. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, anything, I don't know, I guess woodworking moves a lot slower, but it's still, uh, there's still just a, you know, if you think about it, if you had, you wouldn't probably have been using a CNC if you worked in a cabinet shop, you know, 25 years ago, but now right. all cabinet shops have CNCs. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, for my day job where I work for a safety consultant, we looked at this one place and they do um, like granite countertops and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they have like giant CNC saws. Yeah. No, I worked with granite I, slabs I, and stuff. Did a lot of, I did a lot of automation. Um, I think I may even have a video or two about it where I, I designed these um, lifts for a cabinet company that come up out of the base cabinet. Um, and so you have a coffee maker or microwave or whatever hidden away in the cabinet and then it rises up out of the cabinet. And he ran his shop and worked very closely with one of those companies. And they, and it's crazy. They have a, a CNC that's like half the size of my shop that they put big slabs of granite on and CNC granite countertops. It has a big, for straight lines, it has a big saw that it yep. rotates around, drops a CNC head down, and then runs the saw through it. And then it's got a giant router um, for doing all of the routing and spraying water all over the place. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing that you can scale a CNC up to, you know, pretty much any any level you want. And it's still a CNC. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the tools I work with at work are a CNC in some way. They're uh, they're automated welding tools um or their automated dispensing tools um for dispensing silicones and adhesives but somewhere down underneath they're running g-code and they might have layers of of stuff on top of it to make the user interface easier but uh, you know the machine's running some kind of motion control and we have a few that are running mach 4 have a couple of machines that underlying them they're they're running Mach 4, just like a lot of hobby, you know, CNCs. Like a, like a woodworking CNC router or something. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting. I wonder if anybody has made a YouTube video of having their, like, desktop CNC dispense glue. Uh, <laughs> that would be kind of interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, slowly working in the background on a, on a project at my shop to do to do that. Um, so, but what I want to do is, is, um, meter mix together two part polyurethane and then dispense okay. it into molds or patterns. Um, so it just uses use a CNC as basically a, a cheap injection molder where it mixes two part urethanes and then goes and just fills molds automatically. And then you come back in 20 minutes later and pop open all the molds and set them up again and and it mixes the urethane and injects it into the molds. That's yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that as a, a thing. That's pretty cool. Um Yeah, it's something I've a, been fascinated with for a while. I bought out a bunch of equipment from a um polyurethane molding company when they went out of business. And so I have some really big 
vacuum pots and a vacuum pump and um, a handful of molds and a uh, few, few different uh, tools from them um, that were kind of specific to the industry. And then I talked a lot with some people who used to work there and uh, it's, it, I got into it because I was doing prototyping for people and there seemed to be a good uh, opportunity for a middle ground between a 3D print and a injection molded part. And so if you can make a 3D print, get it all cleaned up, then make a mold of it and then pour it in urethane where you get to choose the durometer of the urethane. You can make it rubbery. You can make it really hard. You can make it translucent. You can make it many different colors and you can make copies every 15 or 20 minutes. So you're not waiting okay. on a, on a 3d printer or you can make more molds and you can make, you know, 10 of them every 15 or 20 minutes. And so it's kind of this mid volume prototyping thing that fascinated me. And that's what drew me into it. But That is, um, yeah, that sounds really cool. Is there a specific type of uh, parts or things that you would make, or you just are more interested in the process? At the end of the day, I'm usually more interested in the process than the, uh, than the machine, which is probably why I have so many machines, because I learn how to use them and I make three things. And it turns out I was more interested in learning how to, to use the tool and get it set up and, and get to the point where I was competent in making things. And then I have it. So if somebody needs something made, it's kind of at my disposal, but I don't, you know, they don't get used every day. Um, but yeah, at the, at the same time, I was making these custom chemical fittings um, for, a, for a customer and I was 3D printing them. And some of them were 52 hour prints. Um, okay, that's a... <laughs> but they wanted to be able to demonstrate um, you know, demonstrate them and have some to give out to people and all that weren't necessarily functional, but it was thirty, forty thousand dollars to make the injection mold. Um, so I was like, well, there's bound to be other people out there that, you know, might want more than a couple prototypes or um and 3D printing is a lot cheaper. I was charging a fair amount for the 3D prints too, because this was back like 2005. Right. Um, and my 3d printer was very expensive. I was an kind of an early adopter and I paid a fortune for my 3d printer. Um, and you can get, uh, you know, most modern day 3d printers are as good if they'll print ABS, they, you know, are as good as my old printer that I paid a fortune for. So, um, it was also a cheaper alternative cause it was cheaper to just mix and pour urethane. Then than to spend the money to and time to 3d print something yeah that's that's really interesting again it's the same thing we're saying like you know the technology just keeps moving so fast that you know you're always learning something new um inventing a process or yeah you know, and a it's a new way to use that tool and you know i kind of i'm kind of paid to learn now i mean not so much with the automation um although i'm certainly learning a lot with some of the new Autom uh, techniques, um, but also figuring out the process you're trying to automate. Uh, 
just doing the science and engineering of of trying to keep things from breaking when you're trying to automate them or pick them up where they're not bending or get rid of any extra heat that you're generating or you know whatever the case may be just solving a problem it's what keeps me up at night researching okay. and trying to trying to figure out why something's um fracturing and and why you know dif- different ways you could do it could you could you freeze it could you um turn it upside down could you remove a part could you you know just going through all of the iterations of how could you how could you make this work okay yeah i can see that because you'd have you know when you're trying to automate it you have to introduce you're introducing all the new you know whatever types of physical properties or stress or yeah like you said heat or temperature that that's different um that you can't anticipate necessarily until yeah and humans are building that process humans are freaking amazing i mean uh you you have somebody that's been doing it for a couple months um or you know someone's been doing it for years and they can't even describe to you what they're doing you're trying to automate it and they they can't even articulate you know but a tiny fraction of what's going on in their head and what they're doing and how they're manipulating it to make it work and they're like oh i just do it like this and you sit there and watch them and they're you know they're holding a flashlight and they're turning their head to the side and they're moving the flashlight in their head at the same time to look into something um and they're like ah there it is that see that's what i'm looking for right there and you're like well how do i make a camera on a gantry <laughs> have yeah, can... all of these degrees of freedom and look at it from five different ways and and shadow the uh, a uv light source and and move it all around you know at high speed um and then when it hits upon what they're looking for, just stop and go, ah, yes, that's that's what it is. And, you know, a person can't even describe that you're like, okay, can you write down the steps you take? Do you, you know, move to the left first? Do you move to the right first? And it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You just do like this. Um, or, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. or they just finesse some parts together or something. And, they, you know, um, it's it's amazing. Humans are are amazing at... Uh, adapting and and figuring out how to do things and then once we've done it for a little bit we don't even help know how we do it um but to try to get a machine to do that can be a year's worth of work and a person can learn it in a month so i don't think robots are going to completely take over no yeah we'd still have to get what's in our head you know explain it to the robot and then in the way that you know, uh, takes into account the limitations because, right, the robot is never going to have just the flexibility and the, you know, or not never, but <laughs> probably right. not soon enough um, to, you know, to accommodate, you know, make those accommodations like where you're like, yeah, you're tilting your head and the robot, you know, it doesn't know, oh, if I just tilt my head a little bit to the right, I can, right. you know. And maybe, get maybe as angle. we get a little more uh, advanced with AI, um, then we'll just let the robot try it until it you know figures it out and that will probably be the better approach at some point when we have the the capability to do that um yeah. but right now we watch a person do it and then we try to program a robot instead of just having a robot with the dexterity and then just let it sit there and make mistakes and tell it what if it's right or wrong um, yeah because that's what so, the human's doing yeah 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 <laughs> yep that's it so we need to make a robot that knows how to make mistakes. 
because uh, that's where you go, if you go back to this, that's what we say is that like that's where the learning happens is when you make the mistakes. So mm-hmm. the smartest robot will be good at making mistakes. But a lot of yeah. them without burning down the factory or hurting itself or the other robots. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that's I true. mean, that's kind of AI in a nutshell. Is, yep. uh, yeah, it's, it's just the, just the, the ability to um, to make attempts and get feedback on whether they were good or not and make millions of them much quicker than a human could. So Yeah, that's right. But the one thing that I think you, you could get feedback from a human is um, if they're really aware of what's going on, is you can be like, hey, if we, instead of me moving in this weird contortion, how about if we just like, uh, you know, change the configuration of this, you know, the target object or whatever, you know, we move, because the robot can't tell you, oh, if you move everything five inches to the right, it'll make everything simpler. <laughs> That's right. the one thing I think that's missing. Yeah, there's yeah, a really good so. TED talk that I think is called uh, "Running with Robots" or something. Okay, that brings up the concept of, uh, um, or at least that's I think a phrase they use in it. But the concept that um, just humans, um, they they pitted a team of just humans, a team of just robots, or a team of humans and robots, and the best combination is is humans and robots with the robots doing the the really fine dexterous stuff or the real repetitive stuff, but the humans kind of helping the helping discover the mistakes and, and quickly push the robot into the right direction or get it set up correctly. Um, so the, the collaboration is, uh, is good. That's interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out and learn some more about that because that's, uh, yeah, for my day job with, my safety job that I do, we did have, to, I did have to look at um, the standard for, I forget what it was called. There's the robot safety, ANSI standard stuff, how mm-hmm. to, uh, <laughs> how to uh, stay safe with robots. And that's really interesting to look at, you know, how, how the robots and humans work together. Yeah. We've got a number of cobots um, where I work. And that was kind of the, the craze a few years back. Um, again, being the early adopter that I am, that's why I became a, uh, an integrator for a company that made cobots, which are collaborative robots. And the concept is they can work right alongside humans without the safety cages and stuff because they're made to error out if they bump into anything and, and to be more aware of the forces that they're using. And if they t- are taking a force that's outside of their programmed force to do something, they stop and, um, but by nature, they're kind of they're kind of slow and <laughs> uh, right. Com- yeah, com- compared to a typical industrial robot, is the trade off. Yes, yeah, because they that's the point of having the robot is it can do something that a human could never do, and that's you know that definitely can lead to danger. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's cool. We definitely took a a winding path there to. <laughs> a lot of your different uh, different things that you've learned along the way. Yeah, it's uh, um, yeah. In some ways, I've been kind of doing the exact same thing my whole career, but there've been lots of uh, lots of rabbit holes and and lots of makery stuff from welding, a little bit of woodworking to you know mo- most things I came across in my career 
before the maker community really came into them. And so by the time they became something that makers were doing, I had had already had one and done it. And and so sometimes I feel like I kind of missed out because people were um, were doing a lot of really cool things with these new new tools. And I had already been like, you know, had thought of them as a business tool and wasn't just using them to create and just have fun. And they were sitting in my shop and then I would see people making stuff online with their 3D printer or their laser cutter or, you know, whatever. And then I kind of feel guilty that it was like, man, I should just be, I should be way more productive as a maker because I have all these tools that people would love to have that are just sitting here for when a customer pays me to make something. And I'm not just turning them on and creating something every day just for fun. Sure. Like, do you remember a project that you worked on that was just for fun? Um, I, I mean, I enjoy what I do at work, so I'm always kind of having fun, Okay, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's been it's been a while since I've done something that uh, somebody didn't pay me to do, or I wasn't doing it as an experiment to learn how to do something at uh, uh, for work or something. Um, I've done I've done a few projects for you know friends and family that were fun, some some weldments or projects that were were fun. But again, it was because somebody asked me to make something for them, not just wander in the shop like I used to as a kid and just look around and go, I'm just going to start start making something. Um, but, uh, every once in a while, um, and I haven't done this in a while, but I used to just be, I would listen to podcasts and, and I would wait for them to say something that inspired me to make something. And then I would just make it and do a little short on it. Um, you know, okay. just some, something relevant. I would look for just some tangential or relevant thing from the conversation. And, uh, and then I'd be like, oh, I'll just make that. And so I have a few odd, odd things that were like flying giraffes and, um, like this thing up behind me right up here that I'm pointing at that of course listeners can't see, but it's like these yes. two wheels. And that was just listening to the making it podcast and hearing Jimmy DeResta say all these European makers, and they're always talking about things in Celsius. And I don't have, I, I don't have a mental, you know, picture thing of what's you know what what celsius and what is fahrenheit and i was like oh God, i'm just gonna make a little thing it's just two gears in a frame and you just rotate the gear to whichever temperature you're most familiar with and the other gear points to what it is in the and it's just something to hang up on your shop wall and you don't have to pull out your phone or anything which would be faster probably to pull out your phone but you, you can just walk <laughs> yeah. you can walk over and you know it was just a fun little thing to make and laser cut and make these gears where you you just turn one to the the temperature system you're familiar with, and the other one points to the alternate temperature. No, I think that goes back to your overarching like motivation to make stuff, right? Because you you're really interested in the physical solutions to problems. You know, mm -hmm. you'll use technology to get there, but you're interested in affecting something in the in the real world. Yeah, yeah. No, it definitely has to has to blink and move. And I, I'd taken apart my Apple II um, within the first year I had it and had started making mods to it to tie to things and outside of it and 
had reprogrammed the ROMs in it with my own features. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a hacker. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the original definition of a hacker was, uh, uh, you know, making or changing things in the physical world. That's the first hackers were, right. like, you know, hacking, you know, the space around them, not, uh, not necessarily uh, on a computer. Right. You go back to the old MIT days. Well, they're still probably in the 60s. They made that one. <laughs> it sounds like it sometimes. And one other thing I was going to say. I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. You have a podcast with uh, PJ and Tom. Uh, Maker Skills. PJ, right. PJ has a podcast and Tom and I are permanent guests. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that so he's <laughs> he's the... If, if he just tells you guys when to show up and uh yeah and you pretend that you did some work uh yeah that's kind of, that's kind of how it works so maker skills maker skills podcast um uh, and, and that's been really good to keep me connected with the maker community um when i've gone off and just done a deep dive into my day job and spend far too much time there because i just like what i do um and so i've kind of dropped off of Instagram or making any YouTube videos or anything, um, largely. Yeah. But I have the podcast I have to do every week and that kind of brings me back around to reminding me to stay in touch with people in the maker maker world. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and well, that what reminded me was because, uh, you said you, sometimes you'd hear something on a podcast and was, it would inspire you to make something. Have you, any of the Johnson's hardware products uh, inspired you to make one of those in the real world yet? Um, not in the real world yet. I've got, uh, I've got some CAD models of a couple of them um, really? that, that we thought would be funny. Um, when we first started talking about the, um, the multi-tool with the, I think it had, it had a hammer and had some other unusual things. And, uh, and the goal was to, or, or what we thought would be funny was if we could describe it well enough and create 3d models and start marketing it. Um, and, and maybe even, you know, threaten to do a Kickstarter or something in hopes that some Chinese company would, would knock us off and start making it so we could buy one. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that that was the joke was that uh, we had no intention of making it. We just wanted to make it seem real enough that someone would rip us off and start making it. Okay. Yeah, some of the you know Johnson's Hardware is a segment on the Maker Skills podcast where they advertise some interesting uh, products uh, that usually purport to solve a problem, but probably would only make it worse. And are often a uh, an item that already exists, but just described in some fanciful way, as though it was a solution to a different problem. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it gets a piece of paper, but <laughs> yeah, whatever whatever the show is for that week, whatever the topic is, we try to make it something that solves a problem related to that topic, and then we brainstorm um, what kind of crazy thing would be out there to solve a problem related to that topic. And, and then whoever, whoever throws out that idea um, usually ends up having to do the commercial. 
unless PJ just wants to do the commercial and then he, then he does it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. And of course, Tom uses, usually uses his, uh, finite Fridays, uh, voice, his sales voice to right. advertise the product, which is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Definitely the, although, yeah, I don't know. PJ is pretty good at coming up with the slogans and stuff. So I think that got a good mix of different, yeah, you'll have to be on the podcast podcast sometime. Yeah, we usually we usually workshop it um, a little bit and then write it down. That would be interesting to see the behind the scenes of of what your how your brains work. I think we're all going to uh, the Catskills Maker Camp. I wonder if we should uh, do a live. Uh, yeah, do a live podcast. Create, how we create the podcast on the fly? That'd probably yeah, just don't... be a mess. Yeah, don't ask for permission. Just start recording things and, you know, just set up somewhere. And be like, <laughs> bring your own tent. I may I may bring my own stuff. So people in the maker community, if you're going to the Catskill Maker Camp, I'll be there. And I'm going to try and bring um, some computers and Arduinos and electronics bits and bobs to put together and play with some electronics. So trying to get in touch with Austin to see what all I need to, to have with me and what, what's going to be available there. That will be, that'll be really interesting because it's definitely, you know, increasing the scope of like the different types of projects that are there. And every year it just keeps getting bigger. And so yeah, I think be Bernie's really cool going to be there with his motors. And I think his son's going to be there um, with uh, some robotic stuff. And so it would kind of go along with, with kind of that genre of making building and controlling things and that's great and doing some programming. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I hope everyone can make it uh, to Casco mountain maker camp. Obviously everyone can't, but <laughs> if you're interested in it and uh, you don't mind camping, you can still get tickets. So I think that's uh, yep. that's a good place to wrap things up. Uh, if people do want to try to find uh, what you're working on, if you have time to post, uh, where can they find you? Uh, if I am going to post, and it's been a while, it's going to be Tanda Madison on Instagram. Um, about every two years, I get a wild hair and make another YouTube video, so I wouldn't hold my breath on on that one, but it's same, Tanda Madison. And then most frequently on the Maker Skills podcast. That's great. Everyone should check out the Maker Skills podcast. It's a lot of fun, and there's nothing else like it, for sure. You can find my work at Dave Bauer Art. Uh, on Instagram and the podcast is on Instagram at making problems to solve. Uh, and I want to thank my top tier patrons, uh, Matt Artigino Serio and Ed Johns. And welcome to my new patrons, Keith Drennan from Blackthorn Concepts and Rob Ray. He shares his work at Shimmering Trash Pile on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can support the show at Patreon at patreon.com, making problems to solve. And if you want, you can leave a review on Apple's podcast. Uh, I guess it helps out. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, thanks a lot, Tanda, for uh, joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.